0: The topic is building the Jewish nation in the time of Nehemia, which is very general. i also be speaking more specifically about a very particular issue that comes up in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a historical issue rather than a literary issue. It's the issue of how to deal with the, how the Jews who come back from Babel deal with the Jews who remained in Eretz Israel throughout the period of the Galut. In other words, just to go back in history. 586, let's say, there is an exile from Eretz Israel. Many, many Jews, let's say, are exiled from Eretz Israel. They arrive in Babel. How, they remain in Babel for close to 70 years and then return in waves to Eretz Israel. However, there is also a community that remains in Eretz Israel for those 70 years. I'll show how we know that. How do the Jews who return from Bavel deal with those who remained in the country? It is primarily a historical exposition. We'll be looking a little bit at some of the archaeological evidence for the community that remains in the country, and then look at how that question is dealt with in Sefer and <laughs> Nehemiah. So that's sort of an outline of what we're going to be doing. Um, I will solve a technical problem in one Pasuk, so you'll get shot in one Pasuk out of this. Uh, but primarily, we will be dealing with historical issues and the larger sociological questions. So, if those issues are of interest, that's what I'm going to, have to expose. And if people prefer to hear one of the other streams, this is a good time to participate. Uh, okay. So, obviously, I haven't bored you yet. Uh, let's uh, move on. This is just a background. Again, I'm not going to focus on the background of before the Galut. I'm going to now give a background to what happens after the Galut. So the Galut happens in the years, the exile happens in the years from 586 and prior. The the exile ends by 586. Anyone who's been exiled, by 585, anyone who's been exiled has been exiled. Exile is done. Um, The Babylonians are in control of the country to some extent. And the Jews who are exiled settle in Babel. Now, we actually know a lot about the Jewish community in Babel during these years. We know this information primarily, partly from Sefer Yehezkel, but primarily from Babylonian administrative documents that have surfaced in archaeological digs over the last hundred years. We know that in Babel, the Jewish exiles, alongside the Egyptian exiles, alongside the Syrian exiles, were settled in were settled in um, in in sort of ghettoized communities. There was a city of the Jews in Babel. There was a city of the Ethiopians in Babel. People preserved their Jewish identity. There was no assimilation, or at least no forced assimilation in Babel. We know this from the names that appear in the contracts. We have contracts from Babel from like 150 years after Galut Babel, containing names like Netanyahu, Shma'ayahu, Delayahu, classic Judean names, saying that these people live in the city of the Jews. So, there is a strong Jewish community in Bavel throughout Galut Bavel. What happens during the time of the return? Here is a rough outline, a very rough outline of what happens at the time of the return from Bavel to Eretz Israel. Do not think that the Jews come from Bavel to Eretz Israel in some massive um, one scale movement. Uh, it's not like there's one plane of one one you know one fleet of planes that brings them all. Rather, there are waves of immigration. These waves of immigration are progressive and become stronger and stronger as time goes on. The initial wave is around five thirty is in five thirty eight BCE at Cyrus Declaration, and it is a fairly small wave. If you look at the first paragraph of Ezra, it lists all the people who return at this time. Continuing on, to the second wave. second time is the time of Daryavesh. Uh, there is a new, renewed interest in immigrating to Eretz Israel, uh, partly spurred on by the political situation. Daryavesh succeeds to the throne after a period of chaos in the Persian Empire. And Darius, or Daryavesh, uh, 5, 522, comes to the throne around 520, a second wave comes up. Probably this is the wave to be associated with Zerubbabel. It's certainly the wave to be associated with Haggai and Zechariah. And then, almost 100 years after the, we- the process has begun, we have the third and most significant wave. And that is the wave under Ezra and Nehemiah. It's in the <laughs> reign of Artaxerxes, who was called in Engle- uh, was called in Hebrew Artaxas, um, for- from around these years. And I'm not going to get into the dating controversy of Ezra and Nehemiah. I'll take this as a, as a ballpark date. Now, these are the different waves of immigration. The question that we're dealing with primarily comes up around the period of the second and third waves of immigration. It's not really an issue in the first wave. The first wave, we had a small number of Jews who come to Eretz Israel, try and reestablish establish the mizbeah in Yuzhlay, not the Mikdash, only the Mizbech, and start offering sacrifices. That seems to have stopped after some period of time. They run out of money and out of effort. And that's renewed in 520 with a larger wave of immigration. And it's in 520, the period of the second wave, that the question comes up, who are the Jews? There was the same question that comes up in the state of Israel in the 1950s in uh, sort of the famous uh, Shalit case, the Brother Daniel case. Who is a Jew? Here is the question that's phrased slightly differently. Who is to be included? Who is part of the us that is the Jewish community? And what act defines the Jewish community in the time of the return to eretz? Israel? More than anything else, it is the participation in the building of the Mikdash. Right? So as we spoke about a moment ago, you look back at waves of immigration. The first wave succeeds in putting up the foundations of the Mizbeah and offering sacrifices for some amount of time and then dies out. The second waves restart the project of let's build the mikdash, and so we're now in 520 with the second wave coming. Who is going to be allowed to participate in the building of the mikdash? And here we have a famous interchange in Ezra Perakdal, which is not in your handouts. If you have Nachim, great. Um, otherwise, it's on the board. For those who have trouble reading Hebrew, you should learn, um, and uh, Ryan will appreciate this. And uh, if not, please, if you have an English Hebrew Tanakh, we'll share with a, with a friend. I, if the handout's in the sheet and the board is going to be only in Hebrew, although I'll try and explain. The passage begins here. Ezra 4. So some enemies of Yehudah and Binyamin. We're not told who these enemies are. They hear that B'nei HaGolah, what literally does B'nei HaGolah mean? <laughs> like the people who have come back from the exiles. This is a reference to that group that's come back, in succession. And they, cut, they hear that they're building a hechal, a, a temple. By like, And they say to them, nivne This is the key phrase. We will build with you. Why? Because we are also worshippers of your God. Like you, we are, uh, we, Nidrosh Lelokim is a phrase that appears in, particularly in Chain literature, means we are worshippers of your God fundamentally, and for many years we've been worshipping him. Uh, the answer that they're given is, by, uh, they're to, they, according to the text here, they say, we've been in the land since the time of the Assyrians. In other words, this. Speech is given by people who came to Eretz Israel only at the time of the Assyrian um, conquest, roughly at the time of Yeshayahu and Abi. So lahem the Yeshua of the 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 Nasi Yeshua the Kohen Gadol, who are leaving the people time of Ezra Chagai and Zechariah uh, say. Lo belanul did not buy the volcano. It's not for you and for us together to build a house. Here, anachnu yachad means we alone. We alone will build. We're not interested in participation with you. So this is an, a very explicit rejection of the participation of this group in the building of the Beit HaMikdash. Who is this group? They seem to be people who immigrated to the land of Israel at the time of the Assyrians. They say here, Mimea Sar Chadot. Based on this, this passage is usually understood to be a reference to um, the Samaritans who live in the city of Samaria, people who were brought by the Assyrians from outside of Israel to settle in the land of Israel around 720 BCE. Now, it's important to recognize no such people were brought into settle in Yehuda. But right? the land of Israel is divided into two sections. Israel, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Yehudah throughout the period of the first temple. The kingdom of, of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians exile the 10 tribes, and then they bring in immigrants. The Babylonians exile the people from Yehudah, but do not bring in immigrants. So we're now looking at several different communities in the land of Israel. There are the remaining, there are the, anyone who remained from the 10 tribes in the, in the per, territory of the kingdom of Israel. There may have been such people, we know little about them. Then there are the people who were brought in by the Assyrians to this country. Then there are the people of Yehudah who were never exiled. And we'll speak about them in a moment. they are a very important component here. People of Yehuda who were never exiled is number three. And then the returnees from Bavel were number four. Plus there are Eniknanim who remained in the country, as well as Plishim and other non-Jewish elements. So there are a lot of different groups in the country. Again. In Israel, we have any remnants of the old kingdom of Israel, plus the Samaritans who were brought in by the Assyrians, the speakers here. We have the people of Yehuda who remained in the land. It's the people of Yehuda who are now returning. And it's the people of Yehuda who are now returning who are rejecting the Samaritans, saying, you're out. We alone are building. That's great. But how do the people of Yehuda react and relate to those who remained in Yehuda throughout the period of exile, right? You with me on the different groups? Any questions on the different groups? Please ask. I can I can put them up on the board. But <laughs> right, so the, the key phrase here is Velo anachnu zochim, mime Ashur, now, they, they claim to have been brought to the land by Esar Haddon, king of Assyria. Esarhaddon king of Assyria, reigns the beginning of the seventh century BCE. He is the successor of Sennacherib. When Sennacherib is killed, uh, Esarhaddon takes over from him. Uh, so it comes from roughly 686. So that if by their own admission, they are not part of the original Jewish population who came in at the time of Shoftim, rather they are a new population that was brought in um, under Esar Haddon. For more on them, read Melachim chapter 17. Yes? Why didn't they give us an answer why they rejected them? I'm sorry? If they're a new population, just say you're a new population you don't belong. Why did they mention this? What uh, in the their hands? they their... rejected these people, why did they say you weren't part of the land originally? But well, I, I think that that's implied. It, it's a good question why why they don't mention implied, that here. They don't say it directly. But they don't say it directly. It's an interesting question because perhaps one of the questions is, well, what do we, that's great that we'll reject the Samaritans, but what do we do about all the Jews who stayed in the land of Israel throughout all the years? People in Yehuda who stayed in the land. Are we going to reject them too? That's an important question. And we begin to expose that question, Pasuk here. Vayhi am ha am otam livenot. So am who are am Haaretz and who are am Yehuda? We're not told explicitly who Amma'arats here and who are Am Yehuda. are the people of the land, people who own land. Amma'arats are the people of Yehuda. To what group do the, those who remain in Yehuda belong? Are they Amar or Are they Amihuda? Yehuda? That remains opaque in this particular passage. We're just pointing out there's a problem in this passage. We don't solve this problem. However, we begin to show some concern with solving this problem. In Ezra Perak Vav, Ezra Perak Vav is the beginning of the second wave. Ezra Perak Vav is the conclusion of the concluding narrative of the second wave. And here, look at Ezra Perak Vav, where we have the celebration of Pesach. The celebration of Pesach is the concluding episode of the narrative of the second wave. Now, the celebration of Pesach is particularly important because Pesach has a defining uh, moment in terms of who. Participates more than any other holiday. Pesach is a, 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 the, the question of who is a Jew is defined at Pesach. What's the classic example of this? Right, even a Jew who is a real may not eat from it. Certainly, a non-Jew. Um, the there's a sort of there's a there's this famous story in the Gemara. Rabbi Yehuda Ben and the Gentile from the tzivin who or the Gentile from the Galil who tries to eat uh, uh, for the Pesach. Pesach is the time when we when we explicitly exclude Gentiles from, eating from, the, from the eating from the Pesach sacrifice. Great. Who are the Gentiles? Who are the Jews? Okay, so who is participating? those who return. Why? We're told, so we're in better shape than the Pesach of Fischiao. They've all the Kohenim and Leviim of all become pure. They offer the Pesach by Ishkatu a Pesach to the Hagolah. Ula chayev a Kohenim velaher. They offer the Pesach for whom again b'nei Hagolah. But then we have an additional pasuk. Pasukah al adds the pasukah and expands the concentric circle. Va'achlu b'nei Yisrael hashavim mehaGola. This is group one., what I called before group three, the Jews who are, who are who have returned. Additionally, the. Here we have a second group mentioned, a group <coughs> consisting of those who have separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land. What does it mean the impurity of the nations of the land? There is this concept throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'm not going to go into it in great detail now, but there is a concept in Ezra and Nehemiah. We see this particularly in the story of um, the nashim in Ezra, the story of the, the Gentile women in Ezra, um, in Ezra chapter 9, where we, where, uh, sorry, it's, it's mentioned in Ezra, it's mentioned, in, it, I forget what chapter it's in Ezra, but past, chapter of the, of the Gentile women in Ezra. Um, we have this concept of the people of the land are Tameh. People who remain in the land are Tameh. Who does that include? Does that include the Gentiles in the land, or does it also include the Jews who were never exiled? Here we're told that it's possible to separate yourself from the impurity of the nations of the land and to join B'nehagola. It's possible, in other words, for some of those who are not B'nehagola to separate themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land and to join B'nehagola in doing exactly the action before that they were told that the Shomronim could not do. Lidrosh to worship God. So it's possible for those who remained in the land to begin to become um, divine worshippers on par with Bnei HaGolah. As long as they separate themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land. This to me implies the beginning of the acceptance of some of those who remain in the land on level with B'nei Hagola. We are now expanding the community beyond B'nei Hagola. I think that's explicit in Pasuk Kapala. Does anyone want to argue? Yes, please. Yeah, I mean, it seems me, the same between doing the Pesach and, and eating the Pesach. But if doing or slaughtering the Pesach was limited to the B'nei Gola. But then to the eating they included on other... But that seems to be pshat here. Um, we know that Pesach you don't have to be a kohen to eat, to, to Shek Pesach. Uh, but you do have to be a Jew to eat Pesach. Right? So any, Jew can, any Jew can slaughter and any Jew can eat. Somehow, there seems to be a restriction here in the pasuk that only that they're going to allow only those who have this pure yichus of ret- returning from Babel to shecht, but they'll allow everyone to eat. That does not seem to have a clear basis in halacha, but it seems right. to be some sort of, and also the language of in the first passage, There's, there's purifying and they're separating from tamo, some kind of right. distinction. Uh, right. Right. right, 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 that's, that's why well, I think there's a lot of distinction. Here, it's a technical issue. For, to 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 participate in the shechining of Pesach, you have to be tahor. You have to not, you not be Tamemet. You have to participate in the ritual for on the other hand, these people are, we're not told that they participate in a, some sort of ritual. We're just told that they separate themselves from the nation of the land. That seems to be more of a sociological distinction than a technical distinction of becoming tahor. We're, we're not told here that they're poresh that they do an act of tahara. We're just told they separate themselves from Tuma. Yes? The assumption that they didn't go into the law, that they didn't have the lower education and the leadership it was the community, or individualized but they couldn't really get into Yirskite. That oh, uh, so that's a very, very important question. I'm going to deal with it momentarily. I'm going to get, deal with that question in, in a couple of minutes. It's a very, it's a very important question. Yes? What if the people who had a name in the land from the conception be considered the ones that were longer and specified? But that is not the perception of Sefer Ezra. That's the key point. The perce- Sefer Ezra is written from the perception, from the, from the point of view of of the Jews who return, who say, we are the Jews, and become the leadership of the community. And it's important to recognize why this is so. And now I'm going to begin to answer this question also. When Galut Babel happens, it's important to recognize Galut Babel happens in stages. Galut Babel, as I said before, 586, that I gave the date of 586 for Galut Babel. But that's not really the date when the majority of Jews are exiled. When does Galut Babel begin? 597. But at least the 597. Uh, if not earlier, and begins with the exile of the Charashva <laughs> Masger, the elite of the society, and then the exile of the next stratum of the elite, so that only the poorest of the land remain. Sefer Melachim is very explicit: not all Jews are exiled; the poorest of the land remain. There are, according to the of Sefer Melachim, there are Jews who remain in Eretz Israel. Now. They are, who, what societal group are they? They are the poorest of the, of the people, the people who do not have the luxury to engage in education, the people who do not have, have, have luxury to participate in, um, in learning. And more clearly, we can define them geographically. Because uh, I think I need to expand this map a little bit. Uh, just one second, bear with me while I try and get a little larger about yes, as big as I can get. Is that? Why don't yeah, slideshow. What do I do? Five F5? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Up, Wait, up, the up, up, up. Go up, up. Go up one line. Oh. Up to yeah. just a little yeah. to the left. Yeah. 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 Go right. thank, thank you. Sorry. I really <laughs> am a, a logical <laughs> idiot. Uh, thank you for your patience. <laughs> OK. Uh, can, can, is this visible? Okay, so yeah, if, if you don't mind, oh, the screen is better. Yeah. No. First, to get back to the point. All right. The key. The truth is, you don't need the. You don't need such detail on the map for, to get the point. The key point here is who is exile. We know this geographically. We know that Jerusalem itself, the city of Jerusalem. Is entirely exiled. The city of Jerusalem really is desolate, razed, destroyed. There is no one le- there. There is no one left there. Now, when I say destroyed, I mean emptied. I don't mean that all the buildings are destroyed. On the contrary, many of the buildings remain, but there, are the wall, some of the walls remain, but there is no settlement in Jerusalem after Galut Babel. Those are one of the. That's one of the areas where which the Babylonians really do succeed in completely emptying. Now, as we go around the rest of the country, and this is Yehuda as it exists at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, we can get a clear sense which areas had continued settlement from the time of Galut Bavel, and which areas did not. How do we get this picture? We get this picture based on archaeology because there are particular, the period of Galut Bavel is called the Babylonian period. And the question, the way you figure this out is you go around and you look at archaeological sites. You do either digs or intensive surveys. So digs is where you actually go down and, and break and, and do the whole, the whole the whole tell. A survey is where you do a section of a tell. In a, an intensive survey would do a section of a tell and a dig. And you try and get a sense of in what periods was this site settled. So if you have settlement from thousand BCE, seven hundred BCE. 597, 586, 500. Continuity of settlement. Then there's never been a there's never been a break in the cell in the settlement of that site. And that site is one where Jews remain throughout the period of Galut Bavel. Because if there were people there from before, before 597, people there after 538, it's the same settlement. The settlement is never destroyed. You don't have a burn layer there. That means you have continuity. In contrast, you have other sites that are abandoned. Before 700, or actually burnt around 597, and those are the sites where there's no continuity of settlement, where there's a break in the settlement gap. How do you know what period sites are settled? All, like all of, all of archaeology, the dating rests on the pottery. There's particular types of pottery that are characteristic of the uh, Babylonian period or the, the, the end of Iron III. In archaeological terms, there are particular types of pottery that are characteristic of the Persian period. Persian period pottery is really easy to uh, identify; it has particular coloring, the particular shapes of of, uh, of jugs. And in sites where you have a break in settlement, you know that, that the, there is a there is no continuity. On the, this, the archaeology of the period really has been greatly clarified in the last three years or last last ten years by um, a, scholar, a very scholar named Lipschitz. And if you look at page three of your handout, you'll begin to see a little bit about how he works. And the way he works is based on a technique called um, settled dunums. The technique of settled dunums is essentially where you measure how many archaeological sites you have settled at the end of the Iron Age, which would be the end of the pre-exilic period, and then he measures the sites met, uh, that are settled in the Persian period. That was before the exile and after the return. What are the, uh, before the exile and after the exile, what are the numbers of, of, uh, of what are the numbers of dunams? Numbers of, of dunam is roughly 100 meters by 100 meters. Um, what are the numbers of uh, sites that we have settled in these periods? Um, and, he gives you a fairly precise breakdown. If you look at, at page three at the chart, you'll see that in the area of Binyamin, Binyamin is the area north of Yerushua, this whole expansive area. You have 1,150 dunam before the exile, and you have 500 dunam settled after the exile. Assuming that the number of people per dunam remains constant throughout the two periods, and that's a fairly reasonable assumption on a large scale estimate. We're not interested if there's two more or two less. We're interested only in large scale issues. The decrease in settled area you see is 56.5. So that there is a lo- that there is a- about half the people in this area from before the exile are exiled, and about half the area remains. So this area is about is half in population during the exile. Go on and look at Yerushalayim. What's distinctive about Yerushalayim? Right, almost the entire population of Yerushalayim is exiled. Right? The, po- the settled area of Yerushalayim decreases by 90% during the exile. Um, Similarly, if you continue on, if you look at the southern Judean hills, the southern Judean hills are the area from um, from Tevron and south, this area south of Tevron and south, you have certainly a a large decline in that area because of the um, exile, because that area is very difficult to defend. And um, there are certain other areas, the Beersheba area, the eastern strip, by which means the desert areas, all the various desert areas, the periphery of Yuda, here, the Jordan Valley, the southern Judean hills, the area around Beersheba and Arad, plus Jerusalem, all the desert areas plus Jerusalem, all of them <coughs> decline massively in population. What area does not decline in population? Please look at page three. Is there a problem? What area does not decline? I'm sorry? No, 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 Northern, no. Right. Northern Judean Hills is the is the area that he names here. Northern Judean Hills roughly corresponds to the... Uh, Northern Judean Hills today corresponds roughly to the area uh, designated as the regional municipality of Gush Etzion. The Gush Etzion contains more or less the whole Northern Judean Hills. It's the area from... Beitar and Beit Laham all the way south to Tokoa. Even a little bit farther north, we can really include the area from Beit HaKerem. Beit HaKerem, do you know where Beit HaKerem is? Not what they call today Beit HaKerem. Where is historic Beit Akerim? Anyone? You want to go to Midrash at Lindenbaum? Yes? Where's where's place Beit up, you really up, know? Yes. That's right, oh. top of the hill, Midrash at Lindenbaum. Uh, Beta is the Biblical. Beta is Ramat Rachel at the archaeological site that's they called Ramat Rachel. Um, that whole area from Ramat Rachel, or Beda, really Beda Keren, all the way south to Beit Sur. we know where Beit Sur is? Know where Chachul is? Chachul is right out, if you're going south on the jerusalem Hebron Road. You get to the Gush Etzion, Tzomet, the John, Tzomet, Gush Etzion, the next major Arab town on the, on the road is called Chalchul. Chalchul is, what the, I think, the only town in Eretz Israel which whose name hasn't changed in 3,500 years. It's called Chalchul in Sefer Yahshua. It's called Chalchul today. Same, same name. Um, and well, the twin town of Chalchul is Beit Sur. It's right near, near it's well, close to Karmitsur. So this whole area seems to have had no decrease in population at the time of uh, Galuk Baver. Now, this is going to be extremely significant in understanding the dynamics of the integration of these people with the rest of Yehuda. Look for a moment at the charts on page four, and you'll see this graphically illustrated. Uh, You'll see on page four that Benjamin, sort of in his towers there. You'll see he has a tower, a black tower, which is the population for before the Galut. The gray tower is the population after the Galut, the black tower for Binyamin, the gray tower for Binyamin is half the height of the previous black tower. The gray tower for Yerushalayim is very much small compared to the previous black tower. In contrast, the northern part of the Judean highlands, the two towers are almost the same in height. Right? So that, this area does not experience Galut. And it's the Jews of this area that really are of concern to Ezra Netanyah, because this area does not have an exile. This area has somewhat of an exile. These areas have significant exiles. But this area has very little exile. So what? How, does, how do Ezra and Nehemiah deal with these people? That is the question I want to expose in the next 10, 15 minutes. Going to continue now by looking at um, Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah Perakeh. I'm going to briefly look at Nehemiah Parake, And then I'm going to focus in on Nehemiah Perakeh. Nehemiah Perak is an overall discussion of Nehemiah dealing with a sociological problem, sociological and economic problem among the people. The problem is that of the credit crunch. If you look at the beginning of Nehemiah Perak it's the first page of your handouts. There is, there is screaming among the Jewish people against their brothers. Who is screaming against whom? We are our children are many, we have not enough food for them. Pasukimo reflects the view of Jews who are in even more dire economic straits. We will give over our land in um, in uh as a bond, give us food that we may eat. And reflects people who say, we have given over our, we have borrowed money in order to pay the king's taxes. You'd have to get the lights. Uh, we have borrowed money to pay the king's taxes. We have no money now to, to live on. And who are those who are, the, who are supposed to, who are those who are lending the money? It's not the Babylonian officials. It's the Jews who have returned, who seem to be loaning the money to the Jews who remain. Why do I say that? The very, at the very least, it's clear here that there are rich Jews and poor Jews, and the rich Jews are lending to the poor Jews, and the poor Jews are feeling oppressed. Look at pasuk zayin. What's Nehemiah's response? He complains to the chorim and the skanim. Now, who are the Khorim and the skanim? Khorim and skanim are the officials appointed by the Persians. But they are seem to be here members of the Jewish population. The Chorim and are Jews. Elsewhere also in Ezra Nehemiah, Chorim and clearly referred to Jews. They are Jewish officials appointed by the Persian government. Why is he arguing with the with these with these Jewish officials? They seem to have money, and I think it makes sense to understand that these that these Persian that these Jewish officials appointed by the Persians are among the people who returned from the exile. They're not the people who remained, but the people who returned. You could argue with me on that. I don't have a clear proof for that. It just makes sense that who would the Persians appoint? They would appoint people who would come from Persia who were part of a Persian imperial process, rather than people who remained in the land throughout the centuries. I think that fits with what's going on in Sefer Ezra and Nehemia. But in any case, you have to agree with me that there are rich Jews and poor Jews, and Nehemia here is trying to create some level of vertical integration trying to integrate the rich Jews with the poor Jews and telling the rich Jews, you can't do this. You have to be fair to the poor Jews. And he says to them in Pasuk um, Tetz, And he demands from them in Pasuk Yud Aleph, return all that, they, that you have taken from these poor Jews. Let them live. Give them back their money. So is here is concerned, in this parak with creating some kind of integration among different sectors of the population. Now, I want to use this as a model for understanding parek given what we saw on this map. Are there questions at this point? I realized that I, I, what I did is I talked about the geography, then I skipped to an economic split, and I showed how Nehemia integrates an economic split. I'm Going to use that data in examining Parakimel, but this was a good time for questions. Yes? Do we ever feel who owned the land? Like the, the exiles come and you know claim property and so on. So a lot of a lot of Nehemiah deals with that issue. Um, the exiles, the yellow dot, yellow marks on this map, are the cities which are mentioned in chapter 11 of Nehemiah, which are cities to which the exiles return. The exiles seem to have the idea that if there is empty land that was from which Jews were exiled on time of Beit Rishon, they can return to that land. But you'll notice that the exiles don't return. There's no yellow dots over here, because the area is settled. Right. So the exiles seem to return to to, to the land. Um, one, one, second. And the Amharat to so the people who remained on the land, they seem to be the people who are living here and in some other places in the country, and <laughs> probably those people who are the impoverished ones. Yes. So I remember correctly from the beginning of the Ezra when they said, "Everybody, let's go back." And then they said, "Whoever's not going back, at least you give us money to go back." Yes. So they would have money from that too. If there. People coming back also would have money from the sort of the, the UJA of Babylonia. Okay. <laughs> one of the lessons is that UJA has to sort of spread its money a little bit more fairly. Anyway, uh, like UJA should give its money to the AACI. Um, I, I don't think it does a member of the AACI, think it's the AACI. To get back to the to the point here, They're right? So the, there, there clearly is a split between those who are returning and those who remain. And now I'm going to speak a little bit about how the wall building in Paragimel of Nehemiah is used to um, integrate the different groups. So now let's look at Paragimel of Nehemiah, which is on page two of your handout. So this is the wall building. of Nehemiah this is the major episode of Nehemiah's tenure in Eretz Israel. Is, an, is his attempt to rebuild the wall of Yerushalayim. And if you look at the structure of Sefer Ezra-Nehemiah, really it's the, it's the section that begins that involves Ezra-Nehemiah, which begins in Ezra Perik, Zayin, and goes through to the end of Nehemiah, it's really structured along the same lines as Sefer Yoshua. It begins with a discussion of the immigration terror to Israel. Then there's this, just like Yahshua begins with that. Then there's the great sin of the Nashim Nochriyot, which parallels the sin of Achan. Put up the parallels of Yahshua and Ezra. Yahshua and Ezra, to end the of We have here, first, the immigration in both places. Then we have the, the sin, which here is the sin of Achan, if you remember, from the Yoshoa uh, Chet. Here it's the sin of the Nashim Nechriyot. They're described in very similar language, and I'm not going to get into that now. Then we have the period of conquest. All right, that's great. But in Yoshua, we know what the conquest is. What's the conquest in Nehemiah? Nezor Nehemiah. It's the real conquest. What's the battle? It's not the Mikdash, it's the wall of Yisholai. It's the wall. The battle is the building of the wall, which really has to be fought to the male because we, we're told in Nehemiah the they have to stand there with their daggers as, as they're building the wall because the ama whoever they are, opposes the building of the wall. And then at the end of both books there's a section that deals with law. In Yoshoah it's, it's, it's the Brit of Shechem. And in Nehemiah it's the Amana. Yeshua it's the Brit of Shechem. And in Ezra Nehemiah, it's the amanah which we find at the end of Nehemiah. So that the wall building occupies a central place in Nehemiah, and the wall here is a um, a major attempt which has certain ceremonial aspects. And let's look at the wall building in Perakimel. Pasuk Alef. This idea that what which is near the Mikdash on the north side of the city, becomes sanctified. The Kohanim are given the privilege of beginning the building of the Mikdash. Now, who else participates in the building? Let's go on. I'm going to. Uh, generally, when people read this paragraph, they just read it as a meaningless list of names of places and, p- and walls and people. But there's a really very profound. Uh, so theologically, also a religious element in this parash. Who are the people who are building the wall? Pesuk What do we know about the people who build the wall? What are we told about them? Who are the people? In, what are we told about the people in Pesuk Where do they come from? Right. What do we know about Yericho based on the archaeology? Yericho is settled by exiles or by returnees. Look back at. Uh, Look back at at Lipschitz's towers. You recall in the Eastern Strip. You recall is returnees or exiles. You recall is returnees, right? Seventy-six percent or so of the people in the Eastern Strip are exiled. because is returnees. Pasukimo. kimo. da adagim b'nu b'nei hasnaa heimakirun. Now, we don't really understand, know clearly where hasnaa is. There may be an estimate on this map, but I'm not going to focus in on hasnaa. Look now um, at Pasuk Hei. Who else participates in the building of the wall? Hatskoi. Where is Tokoa? Right. Here is Toa. Because is essential to understand an hysteric. That's Toa. What do we know about Toa? Who settled who settled in Tocoa here? Sorry? Tukkoa right. is settled, the archaeology is correct. Tukkoa is settled not by returnees, but by those who remained in the land. It was not, by, not by, by those who were never exiled. And the Pasuk of oh, Tukkoa here is very fascinating. It's unlike the other Psukim. Look at the Pasuk. So Tukkoim participate with these other people mentioned in Psukim Gimel Dalit. And then we're told, So that's a very difficult pasuk, but we're clearly told here which group of people from Tekoa are not participating in the building of the wall. The elite of Tekoa, Adirehem. Which implies which group of Tekoa is participating? The common people of Tekoa are participating. Who are the common people of Tekoa? Like The common, common people of Tzkhon are clearly no ones who stay. Even if you want to argue that the Adirim are ones who are wealthier and have some kind of ties to the administration, or the Adirim are ones who um, participate in the administration, or the Adirim are some appointed level, an upper level um, imposed upon the people of Tzkhon some governorates. Nevertheless, it's the people of Tzkhon, it's the Amharats of Tzkhon who participates here in building the wall. And while we're told we're clearly, we're clearly, what's clearly implied here is that the people, the common people of Tekoa, do participate in the building of this wall. And the people of Tekoa are part of this wall-building process. So that the wall-building process here includes the Ko'anim, we see in Pasuk Aleph, the returnees in Pasukbet, and the people of Tekoa, who are the remaining people, among the remaining people in Pasuke. There is an integration of different groups in this wall building project. The wall building project becomes, in a sense, the sort of melting pot which defines who is a Jew in Nechemya. Who is a Jew? We start off with the question who is to be included? Everyone who builds Yerushalayim is to be included. Who, is going to, who are among the builders of Yerushalayim? The Qanim, the returnees. And those who remain in the land who join in building Yerushalayim, and this answers the question of why are the Samaritans excluded? Why are the people of Shomron excluded? Right in. They're brought in from elsewhere. What else do they have? That they're, 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 right, they're trying to build a Mikdash in Shomron. They're they're Shomron. So who then it becomes who is a Jew? Those who those who um, are those who focused on Yerushalayim, sort of the opposite of Hatikvah. It's called. Uh, uh, all the Jews turned to Tzion. So here's the opposite. All those who turned to Tzion are Jews. Um, it's a little bit of an overstatement, but it's not such an overstatement because the question of who is going to be included from among the, those who remain in the country is here resolved in some sense by saying that those who remain, who focus on Yerushalayim, will be allowed to uh, to be part of the community and its larger projects. Let's look um, a little bit more closely at the uh, continuation of the parak, and then I'll make some other remarks on the importance of the wall building. Um, in Pasukzai, Zayin, who are the participants? Pasuk Zayin? Sorry? The, right, so we have people of Giv'on, and people of um, uh, Meronot. We don't know or Meronot is. But these are people of Giv'on and HaMitzvah. Now Giv'on and HaMitzvah were before the period of, um, after Yishalai was destroyed, Mitzvah became temporarily the Babylonian capital of Eretz Israel. The Babylonians appointed Dalia Benachikam at Mitzvah. Mitzvah is up here. The Babylonians appointed him. And there is a group who remains. So people of Giv'on and Mitzvah are also among the remaining non-exile Jews. Just a moment, um, and so here too we have this idea of the remain of the non-exile Jews participating in the building project. And um, if we continue on, look at Pasuk Tet. Who is the who? Who do we know? Who participates in Pasuk Tet? What's the ty- what? What type of individual participates in Pasuk Tet? Sorry. Why? Well, no, he's Sar per Pelech Yerushalayim, the officer of half the He is a Persian-appointed official. So this is someone who has an office for the Pers- an appointment for the Persian government, probably a return lead, certainly a member of the elite. So we see here different sociological strata, different um, demographic groups, different economic groups, all participating together in the building of Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim becoming Ir Shechubra Yachdav, a city which unites Jews in sense that everyone has a stake in it. Um, the concluding prakim of uh, Nechemia, and I'm going to just summarize here, the concluding perek of Nechemia, which I, you don't have in your handouts, uh, speaks about how at the very end of the sefer, there is this um, ceremonial procession around the walls of Yerushalayim, sanctifying the city. Now this has no, this is very difficult to understand halakhically, because it's not doesn't correspond to the halachic expansion of the city that we see described in Mishnah. But nevertheless, they participate in this. The the building of Yerushalayim is is given a certain level of ceremonial and religious import in Nehemiah beyond any technical halachic status. Because Yerushalayim has such great importance um, for the larger conception of who is part of the Jewish people. It's hard to overestimate the importance of of Yerushalayim and Nehemiah. We see here in this parak how Nehemiah uses Yerushalayim, in a sense in uniting the different groups, the remains, those who, who were exiled, those who are the Amah plus those who are um, have government appointments. Altogether, the building of Yerushalayim. That's the presentation. I'll take a few minutes of questions. Um, I think the I'm not going to go into the meaning of this for today. I think it's sort of obvious. Yes? So, you said that no is that connected to the name Moronah actually in the second question, the people in the cliffs, name, the name of Ron, as right, right. It, it, It's very difficult to understand who the Mehronotchi is here. It's possible that it refers to people from Mehron in the Galil, but then the question is, what are they doing in the Mitzvah? The, the only possible understanding is that the people from Meron who came down to Judah y- at the time of Chuban Shomr, the Chuban of the Northern Kingdom, and they remained in Gibbon. It's well, uh, also possible. Yericho is connected to Yerushalayim. It's the gateway right, to the Land of Israel. The whole idea that it was heard in the temple it was first in Yericho. That's why they joined. It's certainly group. possible, but I think it's more on level of drush it, it makes sense that that, that that's why Yericho begins the Farek. But I'm, in terms of, uh, it's possible. Right. But I want to deal more with the sort of the sociological demographic issues. Other questions? Yes. Well, why do you, why do you think that the Joining in the building of the wall was a matter of great significance, compared to because throughout Sefer you have to, you have to look at Sefer Nehemia. Because the, the, the wall building occupies the place that the, that the kibush does in Yoshua, because the Sefer ends with the ceremonial procession of, wall, of the, on the wall, and because the building of yoshua is a central effort of Nehemiah as an individual, and so the, the wall building is the central issue in Sefer Nehemia. The central project. So, And, and compare that to the, the passage we just read about Ezra, about the bringing the Fessah, that if something will include a simple execution, it would be the lowest common denominator as well of a national building project rather than the defining moment of who is going to be incorporating the Jewish community. That's possible, but that's not what emerges from Sefer and Effendia. That is, In the third wave, there is no longer a, a, uh, that same level of uh, exclusion that we see in the first and second waves. There's not that sense of we are excluding the people who remain in the land. Uh, the Pesach is not as significant an issue in the third wave. There is a question of excluding those who are married nashim uh, nufriot, but even that is not successful. If you look carefully at, Ezra, at Sefer Ezra, there's no successful exclusion of nashim nufriot. All that emerges is that there's a commitment at the end of the We won't marry Nashim Nehriyot anymore. But they don't succeed in excluding the people who who marry Nashim Nehriyot. There is, on the contrary, um, a certain acceptance that Nashim Nehriyot are part of the community. Uh, That that seems to emerge. But what clearly emerges is that the central communal project is not just the building of the Mikdash, but the building of the city of Yerushalayim as a whole. And that's why I think that the defining issue in Nehemiah is the building of Yerushalayim, and that's why there's a potential effort here to include different groups in that, in that effort. And again, it's not a random assortment. It begins with the name and if you look through the, the list, it actually traces the uh, city of Yishalei from north to south. This, this, this list. Okay, I'll take questions from the back, uh, and then I'll come to the front. Yes? Ford mentioned the process and included and the Right. The of. Okay, we don't know anything about the technical process of Tara in, um, in that, that that they uh, underwent. We assume it corresponds roughly to the idea of paraduma. The um, what we do know further is that the Levi'im are in throughout these by training. Given a great deal of importance as the singers in the mikdash, especially in the very The singing in the mikdash occupies a very central place. And so the levim are presumably part of the participants in that in that office. Do they have to undergo Tara for that? Only in terms of B.S. and mikdash. Right? Because, they could, because in order to stand in the mikdash, they have to undergo tahara. they're also part of the process of They Look back at the we're not sure that they're reading correctly. Um. He yeah. made. Yeah. I think he taught. I think he taught. They made themselves too hard. Simply okay. false. With other questions, people didn't ask yet. Okay, we'll take two. We'll take the two quick questions, and then I'll. I'll, I'll stop it. Yes. Well, what choice? I mean. Map is off the screen, but what choice did the Chmiel have? If he wouldn't have taken in the Jews who were, you know, just south of Jerusalem, this capital would have been indefensible. As opposed to letting, as opposed to telling the people in the Shomron, "We don't want to have anything to do with you," yeah. and they were outside the borders, you know, on the on the upper limits of the borders, he could possibly defend the city without the possible, but there's, I think we all know the attitude that Jewish people have sometimes. <laughs> I don't care if I succeed, I don't care if I fail, you're not built, you're not part of my shul. even they're building the they have in their hands. That is true. That's just the question we... Oh. When they people, they, wield, they might them. That is true, but I think there's also a, a element here, not a be
1: Thank
0: you everyone for participating. Um, the next.